you brought a Bible with you, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We're in week four of our early church series, and what we've been doing throughout this series is looking into the book of Acts, seeing what we can learn about the early church, and seeing what we can apply to our current context and situation to be the church that God intended for us to be in 2023 and for the years to come. And uh, I just want to take a quick moment and pause because so far we've had four weeks and now we're uh, in six, seven, and eight today. And so there's been a lot of material. And so all of this, like if you remember when we started last year with the book of Romans, all of this is just simply an introduction to you. And so I, uh, being a pastor's kid for all of my life, I was about to say for most of my life, it was all of my life, um, being a pastor's kid for all of my life, I heard so many people come up to dad, and then whenever I became a youth pastor, and even here, I've heard so many people say, I want to get back to reading the Bible consistently, I want to be praying, I want to read the Bible, I just don't know where to start. I open up my Bible, and you know, probably if you're picking in the middle, you're in Psalms, and you're like, I, I don't really know what I'm reading, I don't really know what I'm supposed to be reading how it's supposed to be speaking to me. And so an easy way and a convenient way for you is that if you come on Sunday mornings, whether it's here or another church, is that whatever the pastor is speaking on, whatever passage he's bringing up, read on it, study it, dwell on it throughout that week. Because there's probably more that that pastor had to keep out so that he could keep it to 30 to 35 minutes in a sermon, right? And so I'm telling you, we're going through three chapters today. And so it is impossible, unless you want me to preach for three hours, I don't want to preach that long. I can. If you really want me to, I will. But we're going to try and keep it to 35 to 40 minutes. There's a lot of material that we're trying to cover. And so I encourage you to take some notes so that when you go throughout this week and study it and dive deeper, you have notes to remember what you heard here today. And so with that being said, Turn to Acts chapter 8, and we're going to read uh, the last little part of it, starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and he went on his way, and he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official with the charge of all the treasury of the Kandik, which means the queen of Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And on his way home was sitting in the chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot, heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This was the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? After he gave orders to stop the chariot, 
Then both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. If you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we've read or as we've read your word, Lord, I ask that you just bless this service with your presence. I pray that you move through each and every one of us, move into our hearts so that we can we cannot leave without saying that we felt something. We felt you in this place today. Lord, as we try to cover a large amount of scripture, and though there's so much depth in all of it, Lord, help me to be faithful to your word. Help me to speak truth. And Lord, I just ask that you speak through me as you only know how and as you always do. Lord, open up our hearts to receive the message that you've prepared for us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, so far in this series, we've talked about how the early church was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the gifts, uh, they're, they're given the gifts necessary to reach their communities. They shared the gospel relentlessly. They shared it all the time with everyone that they encountered. And they did just about everything together, praying together, worshiping together, eating together, spending time together. And they saw healing, but they also endured persecution. And today, we're talking about three more essential things in the early church. Three more essential pieces that the early church had to have to continue to be uh, successful. And those three things, and, and you know, if you're taking notes, these are your three things that we're going to be talking about today. Sound theology, prayer, and discipleship. Sound theology and doctrine, prayer, and discipleship. So let's take a few moments talking about sound theology and doctrine. Right Now, you've probably heard sound theology and doctrine, and you're like, okay, that was a lot of Christianese right there. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what he means. Or you do know what I mean, and now you're like, okay, it's about a five-minute nap. That's what we're going to try and do. Right? Um, theology and doctrine can be a little bit intimidating. I know when I was in college and I would have to sign up for those classes, I was like, oh, no, like I have to uh, sit in a boring class. Like That's what it sounded like. It's really exciting stuff. And I don't know how I can make it exciting for you, but it, it's exciting for me. And maybe that's just because I'm a pastor. But um, theology and doctrine, very, very simply put, is what is true about the Bible and how we interpret Scripture. It's the study of God and the study of God's Word, what is true about Him and what is true about the Word of God. So let me try to explain it to you in this way. This is why theology and sound doctrine is so important in churches. If you put two plates in front of your kids, one with broccoli, carrots, grilled chicken, maybe some rice, and the other with fried chicken, french fries, and some type of dessert, which one will your kid pick? Which one would you pick, right? Well, I know what I would pick. I'd pick the fried chicken because I'm General Baptist and a pastor. I'd pick the french fries, and I'd be... Uh, making sure that I had one, two, or three of the dessert options that are on the, the potluck table. But <laughs> what's wrong with that? Well, nothing, but it's not as nutritious, right? I, I think we can all agree that we have some basic knowledge that fried chicken versus grilled chicken, fried chicken's not as nutritious as grilled chicken, even though they're both chicken. And the one plate with the dessert and the french fries and the grilled or the, the fried chicken, it has extra fats and sugars that 
compared to the broccoli and carrots, they just don't have. And so you're adding in that. But they also have empty calories. What empty calories are is that they're energy that does nothing else for your body except for provide energy. And uh, if you've been in any type of health class, you probably remember them talking about some of the health and fitness stuff and um, about different foods and how they might fuel your body versus other foods that are full of empty calories. So they leave you feeling hungry, but you have all of this extra calories. And if you don't burn them, they're stored as stored energy, which we call fat. It's very similar to theology and doctrine. And you're like, how? Well, we take in and we consume God's word, right? Uh, God, or the Bible uses this image of consuming God's word. And so when we're consuming God's word, what we take in fuels our passion and our, our, our desire to reach people with what we've taken in, right? So this is the carrots, the broccoli, the, the grilled chicken, maybe in even some rice if you need some extra carbs and energy, but it fuels your passion and your desire. And so as you have a good theology and doctrine, as you study God's word with those things, it will continue to fuel you to go out and have a passion and a desire to reach people. Whereas if you aren't reading the word and you're not focused on God, then you're still consuming something. You're consuming the things of the world. And the world will give you the fried chicken. They'll give you the French fries. They'll give you all of the fried things and all of the, all of the sweets that you want so that you might really enjoy eating and consuming what the world offers, but you're left with no energy, passion, or desire to reach people. And so there's a lot of Christians that they go to church and they see fried chicken, not in, in the hypothetical sense, right? I, I still love fried chicken. Please still bring that to potlucks like when we have them here. But like... They, they see chicken and they're like, well, that has protein in it, but it's covered with lies, right? That's what the world does. That's what Satan does. He covers things. He covers truth with lies. And so you're still taking in things of the world. Whereas with the grilled chicken, the, the broccoli, the carrots, good sound theology might not be so enjoyable to consume, but it fuels your desires. It fuels your desires to go and reach people and it draws you closer to God and brings you closer to God's desires. This is why it was so important. And why do I bring that up? Well, in chapter six and seven, we, we introduce this character called Stephen. And who Stephen is, is basically what happens is the disciples are very overwhelmed with all of the responsibility. So Stephen is one of the people that they give responsibility to. They, they cast responsibility on him so that they can focus on what they're uniquely gifted at. And Stephen goes and he starts preaching and, um, and he has a really good sound theology and doctrine. To the point to, to where people who are teaching the law of Moses are, are coming to him and they have no arguments against what he's saying. Like they're coming at him and they're like, you're wrong. But then he says something like, well, that really makes sense, but I know that you're wrong somehow. I, I just don't know. And so people are struggling to be able to argue with him because he has so much wisdom and he has a good doctrine. And what happens is those people start bearing false witness. They start lying and they bring him to the Sanhedrin, which was the judicial system. And they, they bring him before the Sanhedrin. And Stephen starts giving this message. And if you glance at it, you'll see Moses, you'll see Abraham. What he's doing is he's tying in the Old Testament and using it as 
as interpreting it as this is all meant to go towards Jesus. And so he'll, he'll talk about a lot of what we see in Hebrews of, of Moses. You know, he did all of these things, but really Jesus did it all better. And Abraham was promised this thing, and Jesus was the promise to Abraham. Jesus was the promise to David. And he'll make all of these connections. And then he ends with calling them to repent, calling them to, to come closer to God and to put away their, their wicked ways. And they end up stoning him. They, they stone him to death because of his sound theology and doctrine. And so it might not be so great to eat. It might not be as enjoyable to consume at times, but it will fuel your passion and your desire to the point to where Stephen, as he was getting stoned, he prayed to God and said, please, Lord, forgive them for what they're doing to me because they don't know what they're doing. And so we as a church, we have to have the same thing. If I stand up here and start proclaiming lies, then we'll see nothing come from any of our efforts. There, there'll be little to no results if we start going into the world with, with truth covered in lies. And the church will run wild like the church in Corinth. And if you um, know anything about the, the church in Corinth, and we're studying it on Wednesday nights, they're, they're crazy, right? Just to put it simply, they're crazy people. And they are far from God. And if we're going to be like that, if we're not going to strive to be like the church in Corinth, then... We, we have to have a good theology and doctrine. Uh, an example in our day and age of bad theology and bad doctrine uh, in churches, you'll see it. They worship their church. They worship their pastor more than they worship God. They worship the people, the fellowship, anything else besides the mission. That's what they worship. And so with that, there's another important thing that I talked about, and that was prayer. Now, we spent an entire year of prayer and um, we've only mentioned it kind of briefly, but it's been showing up regularly. And that's prayer was the vital lifeline of the early church. And the pages of scripture is flooded with it. Prayer wasn't just part of their life. It was their life. Everything that they did was prayerful. It was what kept the church alive. And it was them being in constant communication with God. Paul would later write in one of his letters to, be, uh, to pray without ceasing. And what he meant by that is what I'm going to explain to you. And it's what the early apostles, what the early church did was they, they prayed constantly and consistently. And so let me give you a few insights of how these disciples, how the apostles would have prayed. They prayed at set times during the day. We talked about this briefly, Acts chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. And so this gives us some insight. They had specific times that they would go and pray. You see this even back in the book of Daniel, where Daniel was praying for three times a day. It was at set times. It was their culture and their context that they were doing that. And I think that was a very important part. They prayed in the morning, they prayed in the afternoon, and they prayed in the evening. And so what that represented was that they were starting their day off with God. In the middle of their day, they were still recognizing God. And at the end of their day, they reflected on what God had done that day. And so to return to the early church uh, type of prayer, it would be like opening up this church three times every single day for, for as long as we need and people coming in and praying in this church at the same time, right? So there are set times in the day. Now, 
I'm assuming some of you work. And so if we had a three or a, a, a noon, I was going to say midnight. <laughs> That'd be interesting. A, a noontime prayer, 12 in the afternoon, everyone in the church is just expected to come and pray together. I don't know that I would see very many of you. I might see some of you. But some of you, you work. And so you can't make it in the middle of the afternoon because you're at work. Or maybe you work a different shift, and so you work night shift, so you can't make it at night. Or you have to get up really early in the morning, and so you can't make it in the morning. So it's not super realistic for us to think that we can just start that tomorrow. But it's for you as an individual and you as your family to make these dedicated times of prayer, even if they change every single day, right? Like if, if Mondays, I would encourage you, try to do it three times a day at least, have set times. Make it like the most important meeting that you have and it's with God, right? In the morning as you're waking up, before you get out of bed, this is something I do. Before I even get out of bed, I pray. And, and at night, before I let myself fall asleep, I've prayed. In the middle of the day, maybe it's at lunch, maybe it's after you get off work, on your way home, when you're traveling, whatever it may be, you find these set times during the day that you know that it's going to happen and, and take some time to pray. But they also prayed spontaneously together. This would have been in gatherings, during sermons, during messages, but also just when there are important decisions to be made. Here's a few examples. Acts 1.14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. Uh, in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Acts, 3, uh, or Acts chapter 4, verse 31, after they prayed, the place where, the meeting, where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Anytime there was a decision to be made, prayer was first. When they saw a need in their community, prayer was first. If we're going to be the church that God has called us to be, we must have set times out of the day to pray and then to pray together daily. But also, resting in his presence is prayer. A pastor that I listened to a few days ago, um, he, he has a book. I've not read it, so I don't know if I would endorse it yet but I'll, I'll give you the title of it. I listened to his podcast about the book. And it was called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. And so if you want to look that up, you can. But this, uh, in one of his podcast episodes, he said, this is what the early church looked like. Beside, outside of the set times and the spontaneous prayer where they were together, he said, imagine spending the day with a close friend or your spouse, someone that you're really close to and you're comfortable with. Right, spending the entire day going and traveling somewhere, going on vacation, going to Florida, something like that. There are moments where you're talking about your day. You're talking about things, random things that you've seen on Facebook or in the news or whatever. You're talking about random things. You're talking to each other. There are times where you're listening, where the other person is doing most of the talking and you're listening. But there's also times where you're silent, right? And you're comfortable in that silence. That's the same way with God. That there are moments where we're talking to God. There are moments where we're listening to God and what God has to say, and we need to do that. We need to practice that. But there are so many moments in our life where it's just recognizing that he's still there. Knowing and understanding, like, even though, God, I'm not hearing you, I'm not necessarily saying anything to you because you know, life's great and I've praised you already today, but you know, I just want to rest in your presence. That's also 
prayer. And so this kind of makes it simpler to understand what unceasing prayer is. Because if you're anything like me, before uh, a lot of my study into unceasing prayer, I was like, I have to talk all day long? I don't want to. Like, I'm a listener. If you know me at all, you know that I don't like to talk. <laughs> but, uh, and it was like, I don't want to talk for that long. I can't think in my mind that many thoughts so, to get me through every single day. And so that's when I, as I was going through my prayer journey, I, I uh, developed listening ears for God. And so I would, I would speak to God, but I would also make sure that I had time listening to him. But then, even then, I'm like, I don't want to just sit here and listen all day. And that's where I learned to just rest in his presence. To, to just know that he's there, still going about my business, going about my day. But it's like, God, where are you at in this? Like, like I, I'm traveling right now, and you know maybe someone cuts me off in traffic. And I'm like, God, where are you at in this? Because it's not in that car but it needs to be in that car, right? This was the level of prayer that the early church had. And this was the level of prayer that shook the foundations of the places that they met. It shook the foundations of people's lives and would lead to the transformation of thousands. And this is why as a church, like just to give you some insight, of what, we're, what I'm working on, but what the church is working on. That's why we're going to be intentionally praying for the lost next Sunday. That's why, in a couple weeks, we're going to be adding a prayer service in the morning so that we spend some time resting in God's presence before we hear his word and worship him. But there's still one more thing that was essential to the early church, and it was discipleship. Now, I know, that's another fancy word, discipleship. It might be a little bit intimidating if you've heard it before and you know what it means. But this is a command from Christ himself. In uh, Matthew chapter 28, he says, go make disciples. And so it's to follow Christ means to make disciples. But to make disciples, you have to have good theology. You have to have a good doctrine, a good foundation of biblical truth, and a good prayer life. And if you don't, then you need to be discipled before you start making disciples. Because as a pastor friend of mine once said, bad theology plus broken people yields more broken people. Bad theology plus broken people yields more broken people. So you need good theology and doctrine. You have to have a good prayer life in order to disciple others. And if that's not you, then you need to seek out some discipling from someone else. But when we see a disciple making in the book of Acts, there's lots of examples, but I see just a glimpse of it with Philip and the eunuch. Granted, this is no, by no means a full picture of it, but there's a hint of it. And so in Acts chapter 8, what we read at the very beginning, Philip was being led by the Spirit to this Ethiopian man. Now, given the small amount of details that we actually know about him, we can make an educated guess that, that at that time he was likely a believer of God, but couldn't be a follower per se because he wasn't Jewish. He wasn't of Jewish descent. And because of the Jewish restrictions, he wasn't able to learn anything about the Bible, which would have been the old, our Old Testament. And so with him being an Ethiopian, he didn't have any guidance or teaching on what he was reading. He was like a lot of people, whether he's opening it up, he lands on Isaiah and he's reading it. And he's like, I don't know what I'm reading, but I know that I want to because I love God. I love what he's doing. I've seen his great power and I want to follow him, but I don't know what I'm reading. I don't understand it. 
And that's where Philip comes in. He sees them and he says, do you understand what you're reading? The eunuch basically says, no, I have no idea because no one's taught me. And then in verse 35 of chapter 8, it says, Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him about the good news of Jesus. The start of discipleship is sharing the gospel and then continuing to build on it. But more than anything, discipleship is walking with people through life, teaching and empowering them to do the same with other people. What this means for you and me is that discipleship takes a long time. Discipleship isn't just a class or or a moment in your life. It is a lifetime. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many churches have kind of dropped discipleship and assumed that it was happening instead of being intentional about it. And what that's led to is a lot of bad theology, a lot of broken people yielding more broken people. And we live in a world where we want quick results and we want the quick methods, the, the five-step plan to make disciples so that we can make the disciple and then move on to the next one. But that's not how discipleship is designed. Yes, there are methods to help, uh, to help you disciple others, to help guide and teach you as far as walking through someone's life. That's different because everyone is unique. Everyone's different. Now, we have a lot of similarities, but we're all different. We all have different situations. We're all dealing with different things. And so it almost varies from person to person because some people learn with visuals. Some learn with numbers. Some learn with just words and reading. We communicate very differently than one another, right? If you and your spouse have ever had a miscommunication, where, where she says something, and as the guy, you're like, I didn't hear that. You're like, well, I said it to you five times. Still didn't hear it, right? If there's any type of breakdown in communication, it, no, you, we, you just assume that there is some type of communication where, where we need to improve, right? We communicate differently. Sometimes what we say, we think that they're hearing it the way that we said it, but actually they're hearing it the way that they heard it. Did that make sense? I, I'm trying to figure out if that made sense. We communicate differently. And so you must be grounded in Scripture to know the, the answers to some questions. But you also have to have a good prayer life that when you don't know the answer, you'll be connected with the Holy Spirit to give you that answer. And you'll have the wisdom of how you should respond in that moment when you don't know. But don't be tempted to look at this story at face value. Because yes, Philip started the discipleship process with the Ethiopian eunuch. He explained to him what scripture was about. He took a moment to invest in his life and say, hey, I know that you're in this part of your life right now. You don't know what what Isaiah the prophet's talking about. Here's what it is. Right? He started that discipleship process. But after the baptism, where does Philip go? Somewhere else. Right? The spirit takes him up. But after baptism here, that's when it needs to go deeper. Like, yes, we we discipled you to the point to where you wanted to go and get baptized and you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. But as a church, baptism is not the end goal. The end goal is to make disciple makers, disciples who make disciples. And so as a church, 
We need to provide you with the tools and the, the gifts and the abilities to help you grow in your faith and not just stay a baby Christian after your baptisms for the rest of your life. We as a church, we need to invest in you and to help you. And that's why this year we're creating and I'm creating a discipleship path so that we can start intentionally discipling others. And maybe you feel unqualified to make disciples. Like, well, that's easy for you to say, Pastor. You, you went to, to college. You, you know more about Scripture. You know about the history of the Bible. You know how to respond. You've been trained in all these things. No, I haven't. <laughs> I, I, I know a lot about the Bible and the history of it because I did go to college, but I still have a lot to learn. Some of you in this room have been Christians longer than I've been alive. And if you don't know more about the Bible, there's a problem. Some of you, and I'm not trying to make you feel old, but I'm just, I'm proving a point. Some of you have been a Christian longer than I've been alive twice. That's 48 years in case you weren't good at math. And so you should definitely know more about Scripture than I do. I have a lot to learn about life. I know that. If you feel unqualified to make disciples because you didn't have a degree, because you, you might not have the, the time to study like I have, like because I do, because this is my job, know that you're gifted and you're talented and that you have a purpose in Christ. And one of those purposes is to go and make disciples. Otherwise, he wouldn't have created you. If you didn't have a purpose in this life, he would not have created you. If you didn't have a purpose in 2023, you wouldn't be here right now. He's called you to go and make disciples. So stop making excuses and just go and make disciples. And know that the church is here to help you through it. If you're like, I still feel unqualified. Well, just know this. The apostles of Jesus Christ, the disciples of Jesus Christ, were culturally the most unqualified people. Like if, if Jesus was looking for qualified people, he would have went to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He would have went for the ones who had been studying this and spending all of their time reading and studying the Bible and enforcing the law of God. But he chose ordinary people like you and me. He chose you. And so you might not be qualified, but God qualifies you whenever you become a follower of him. And so I want this church to become what it's meant to be. And I'm going to pour as much as myself as I can because I want to see this church fulfill its purpose this year. I want, it to, I want to see this church fulfill the purpose of seeing 20% of our average congregational size, church attendance, to come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I want to see our purpose fulfilled in 2023 by seeing lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing people impacted and in this church that we thought would never be in this church. I want this church to fulfill its purpose for 2023, to see a change in the community that we stopped sitting inside, but we actually went to our neighbors and invited them to church and started the discipleship process and started saying, hey, I know you're not a follower of God, but I want you to come to church with me. I want you to, to hear about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why you have to have good theology, because if you don't, you will not be empowered or have the energy to go and do that. 
That's why you have to have a good prayer life because if you're not connected with God and you're not hearing from God, you won't hear His call to go. And you have to have a a focus on growing and developing other people other than yourselves. And our minds cannot comprehend what the Lord is willing to do with the church who's willing to obey. With the church who's willing to not stand for mediocrity, but embraces the discomfort and the struggles that come with the calling. I'm telling you, greater things are coming to Shady Grove. But we all have to be willing to go and make disciples.